Hi, I'm Skosha Monkovich. Welcome back for another episode of Creative Responders in Conversation, our monthly interview series where we hear from people on the front lines of the arts and emergency management sector as they prepare, respond and recover from disaster. I'm recording this a few days ahead of World Mental Health Day, October 10, which is a day designed to provide an opportunity to talk about mental health issues and what more needs to be done to make mental health care a reality. This is something we at Creative Recovery Network, along with our colleagues at WA's Community Arts Network, have been focusing on a lot recently, particularly around issues of self-care, mental health and well-being for community-based artists. After four years of collaborative research, we recently released a report titled Creating Well, Recommendations for Practitioner Wellbeing in the Community Arts and Cultural Development Sector. Like those who work in emergency services and social support services, artists who work closely with communities are at high risk for burnout, stress and post-traumatic stress disorder. They are often working in isolation in remote or rural communities and work closely with communities that may carry many layers of social complexity and sometimes trauma. And unlike other sectors that have well-established built-in support structures, the arts does not always provide an effective framework for things like peer support, professional supervision, or time and budgets for proper induction and wellbeing processes. So together with our colleagues at Community Arts Network, or CAN, we wanted to look deeper into what specific challenges arts workers are facing and how we, as a sector, can shift to more sustainable work practices. Today we're hearing from one of the most seasoned arts professionals in the country who has a deep knowledge of both the challenges and the joys of community practice. June Morehouse is the co-CEO of Community Arts Network, which is based in Perth, WA. I have known June for many years and wanted to bring her on the podcast so that we could break down some of the recommendations in the Creating Well report and also to hear her personal reflections on the issues facing the sector and the evolution she has seen in community practice throughout her career. Really good community-based practice is so relevant to what we have been experiencing in these times. We're seeing it over and over again that what people are hungering for as they uh, work their way through this global pandemic is places for reflection and connection locally based. June has more than 35 years experience in the arts, working in senior management and leadership roles, and most recently leading the team at Cannes in an innovative job sharing arrangement with her colleague, Monica Kane. Cannes' purpose is to create positive social change through the arts, building inclusion and understanding between people. And you'll hear from this conversation that June has a wealth of experience to share for anyone working or interested in working in community-based practice. I hope you enjoy my conversation with June Morehouse. Thanks for joining us, June. I'm connecting with you from Mianjin, Brisbane, in Yagaraturuba country. Where are you today? I'm on Wajak Nungabuja here in Walyalup near Fremantle. And hopefully the weather is getting a little warmer. Well, actually, it was eight degrees here this morning, oh dear. which is a little, <laughs> little chilly for this time of year. So, um, yeah, I'm rugged up, but it's uh, nice to be talking to you across this country. 
Yes, and we have we have the touch of spring and summer in the air today. It's quite beautifully warm. So oh, I'll send some down to you. Yeah, we've had some, just not today. Well, it's been such a real pleasure working with you, June, and your team at Community Arts Network on this project, Creating Well. I mean, you are one of the most seasoned members of the community arts and cultural development community and bring such a vast range of experience through your own practice over the years and your it's extensive interaction with many community arts and cultural development workers. I wanted to start by asking you to set the scene a little bit about why this work was necessary. When we look at mental health and wellbeing for arts workers in community, what have the conditions been like up to this point and how do you kind of reflect back on that? I think the issue of self-care in community arts and cultural development is long-standing. It's been around as long as uh, the practice has been around and I've been involved. So if if you look at the roots of this work in the social activism of the 60s and the conviction that most artists I know bring to the work, plus, and you add in the deep relationships that workers form with the people in the communities that they're working with on projects, it's a real cocktail for overwork. I think... Boundaries are difficult to maintain in that setting and over the years that I've been involved, uh, it's been an ongoing issue. I think it could be argued that when the CAN Community Arts Networks existed in uh, most states, there was greater support. So as I think you're aware that I was... um, Job shared the executive officer role for Community Arts Network in Victoria. Yes. In the I first met you year. when you were there in that oh. iteration of your career. Oh, right. Yeah. God, you must have been a young thing. Yes. Um, and because uh, I was a relatively young thing then. And, you know, that was the first year the Australia Council had funded networks uh, in New South Wales and Victoria initially and Queensland. Anyway, then they rolled out. Mm. Then they rolled out in each state, and I would say that obviously the purpose of the networks at that time—they'd grown out of people who were committed to this form of practice coming together to support each other um, and to advocate for this way of working. So, uh, and and the networks really took that up and became service organisations for people working in this area, doing a lot of advocacy work, especially through local government and then upwards to state and feds. Um, And, you know, we would organise professional development, have regular meetings of people working in community arts. So there was quite a lot of peer-to-peer sharing. So over those years, and obviously the CANs became more sophisticated in their offerings, we had regular newsletters, all of that kind of thing happening, and a national network, Um, there was greater support and ongoing dialogue, I think, between peers. Um, But, you know, I don't know the degree to which we were focused on self-care in those days. I think we were much more focused on 
getting this kind of work happening in as many communities as possible. So that sort of apparently selfless position can end up being quite a dangerous one because, you know, I do think we're all so gung-ho that you just went at it and, or maybe this is a personal reflection because I was younger and had more energy, we just went at it and, um, yeah, how that translates to a sustainable long-term working life in this form of work or in the arts generally um, and in leadership um, which has sort of more been the direction I've taken, I guess. Uh, I, I think these are just huge issues uh, and I'm really glad to, at this point, as I am looking to um, exit CAN in WA, um, to know that this piece of work's been done and really grateful that we were able to support CRN to do this. And I guess, look, look, just as a piece of context too, people probably wonder, well, why is Community Arts Network only now alive in WA? Uh, there was a shift in the funding away from service organisations and to key producers back in the um, early 2000s and can... NWA was by that time working very extensively with Noongar communities and so was able to make that, or these days we would say pivot um, and, um, and argue its place as a key producer of best practice community arts and cultural development. And I think that's what allowed CAN to uh, continue. And certainly we've seen that service delivery side of our business uh, increasingly challenging to sustain and maintain. Mm, well, so, it's a very different focus, isn't it? And um, yep. with the demise of those kind of networks, which were there primarily to support and grow capacity and look at longer-term strategies, there hasn't been any really other opportunities to catch that or to hold it in any way unless it was a really dedicated producer who really implemented it into their program. It certainly wasn't encouraged through our arts funding bodies or philanthropy engagement. It was very much about do the job, get it done and And move give on. us the outcomes. Yeah. I think the other thing I would reflect on at the moment is that this work, community arts and cultural development, if, if, if that's the terminology we want to use, but really good community-based practice is so relevant to what we have been experiencing in these times. We're seeing it over and over again that what people are hungering for as they uh, work their way through this global pandemic is places for reflection and connection locally based. Mm, well, it's about um, rela- relationship support and relationship connection, isn't it, though, which becomes so evident a- absolutely. when you can't go out in the peripheral space and connect with people. Yeah, and forms different forms of expression that can somehow capture what for so many people is um, an experience like no other they've had in their lifetime. So I... 
I and I observe that within the art sector, there is much more interest in this form of practice, and that's been happening over time generally with individual artists looking more and more at where their work sits in that broader societal context and wanting to place their work in that context and developing relational work. So um, I think the things that we have honed and learnt through community arts and cultural development are ever more relevant to ever more practitioners and that's one of the things that um, I guess I'm also excited about with the idea of the practice framework, but we'll we'll get on to that. But, yeah, that's just some mm. sort of context. Yeah, I agree. I think it's becoming, you know, we've got this opportunity to really highlight the vital role that, that this work plays. But maybe it's good to briefly outline the process or the methodology which we... Mm. We took with this pilot project. Which unsurprisingly could really only be hosted in WA where <laughs> there is a community arts network that yes. could part, partner yes. with you and did have uh, n- remaining networks and continuing networks with practitioners across the state. So, mm, with a very dedicated yeah. focus around practice and yeah. engagement strategies. So, yeah, how amazing. Well, it was, Mm. and Mm. it was just wonderful that, um, you know, you were really pushing in this way through CRN. So we we started with the self-care forum. Um, Oh, Scotia, was it 2017? I think it was 16 even. No, 17, you're right. Isn't Mm. that terrible? (laughs) It feels like a, a few lifetimes ago, but, yeah, it was quite a while ago. Mm, which was fantastic and still, you know, very clear in my mind about the dynamism of that session and we just had a panel discussion opening up these questions but I don't think there were many people in that room who didn't have something to say about this issue and felt very passionately about um, the importance of both structural and individual change to address the need for better self-care, really. So that was that was fantastic. And then the next year, you took us all the way to the country. <laughs> you went to the to Red Binjarab, Earth. You went to Binjarab, Budja, didn't you? Yes. Mm. That was for um, the Making Time uh, Art of Self-Care Retreat. And so it's kind of built on where a lot of this work in, in a really... Um, directed way I suppose began was the making time art of self-care retreat that we held in Melbourne in 2015 and that Mm. was through the directive of a range of independent artists who were you know we'd got together at the Regional Arts Australia Forum and we were having our usual whinge about (laughs) how hard it's been and then Mm. we, we made a decision that actually it's all very well to talk about this amongst ourselves but we really have to put something into action and that was the beginnings of pulling together a national group of um, artists and creatives who were working with their communities to uh, address some some self-care needs and start to I suppose begin a conversation about what are the gaps and how might we uh, respond to them and build a better practice around how we do our work. And so the Making Time Out of Self-Care that was run in Perth was a, 
a development on that. We had, mm. um, oh, I think it was 20 artists who came together over a weekend intensive where we shared stories, um, we discussed practice issues, we... we um, we worked through a whole raft of different um, care modalities. We we had an engagement with um, peer leaders, particularly from uh, Indigenous community and health and wellbeing communities. And we also just had time to care for ourselves and be nurtured and be well-fed and to have um, some space to be able to clear our mind and reflect and try and understand um, our own place within this mm. multitude of practices that we all sit and work in? Well, the feedback was phenomenal uh, from the practitioners who attended and certainly from all the crew at Cannes who took part and uh, that I remember one comment from Fiona Sinclair from Northcliffe about um, along the lines of, you know, there's been so much talk, but this is an occasion when it all came to bear and it really, the caring really was delivered. So um, I think that was a very powerful beginning to the ongoing program for people in WA. I think what that does too, which is um, sad to say, but uh, is the truth is it's not until you experience a kind of nurturing space, do you actually realise the dearth of it? So mm. in some ways we, we have been supporting ourselves intrinsically through our peers and the other mechanisms we have in our life, but to, to actually have it functionally framed for us through the sector that we work in is such, I think, unfortunately, a really rare um, rare experience. I think you're right, and I think that's at the heart of what we've been doing together here. So, um, yeah, I really hope that this can just keep marching forward and pull people together in realising the outcomes. So from that and sort of co continuing conversations you with you and Mon, um, we wanted to kind of take it another step and start to look at functionally how white how might we create some influence in our sector? And I think the biggest thing for me is to understand that currently there's a lot of talk around mental health and wellbeing, but mm -hmm. more often than not in the arts sector, it's always put back on the artist. You need to do this. What about that? What about going to see them? Get your shit together, basically. Um, and meanwhile, we're here for you, but the here for you was kind of fairly vague. And what I understood and what we understood in our conversations is that this that we do have to have individual responsibility but actually the structures around which we work need to support that and actually guide us and be part of the leadership in terms of how we can actually make that happen and so um, you know we we came up with this idea of the pilot and um, met our great colleague Shona Erskins, um, who's practising psychologist and, and practising creative, has a kind of perfect match for us to look at developing a container of what, what a really good professional supervision support might look like. Yes, it was a fantastic uh, match and uh, we can talk a bit later about other work that Shona's doing now uh, or just recently with the Chamber of Arts and Culture 
which again is picking up on this issue of uh, supporting individual and independent artists because, of course, things have only escalated in light of COVID since we began this work. So it's so relevant to what's going on now, but Shona's been a real contributor to that conversation. So with Shona, we we ran the pilot, which was to engage with a whole cross-section of uh, practising artists in WA, urban, rural and remote um, workers, and we went through um, six processes of kind of unpacking sensibilities around self-care and looking at different modalities of how we could support ourselves and also to create structural changes of care for ourselves, as well as looking at opportunities of how we might link into broader support. We finished that process in 2020 and um, we compiled the findings, the outcomes from that, as well as a full day of investigation and conversations that we held with a whole raft of of sector organisations and independent artists working in the area of community practice. That was um, a really excellent day too because it brought together um, a, a much more diverse range of practitioners into the room for that conversation, which was important to us because of this recognition that community-based practice is happening at a range of levels and it's not always framed as community arts and cultural development, but that knowledge and set of understandings and protocols around working with communities are nevertheless entirely applicable and thinking about how we situate this learning in that broader arts frame was felt felt important, I think. So it was great to see the level of engagement we got from um, a diverse set of practitioners that day. Yeah, it's true, you know, isn't it, that the language we put around a practice becomes so definitive in a way where actually the pendulum of, of activity in what we call community-engaged practice or community arts and cultural development um, is so broad that part of our challenge is to work out well, what would be an umbrella to frame that and support it and to be able to articulate it more effectively so that we can have good um, care and responsibility within how we do that work. I think it's really important to take on board the broadening out of this practice Uh, you've heard me before on this idea of seeing community arts and cultural development on a continuum of arts practice uh, where there's different levels of engagement that are happening with communities. There's different levels of uh, self-determination and transference of power that are playing out in uh, various projects that are being undertaken with or by communities. So, um, but I think that some of the fundamental learnings that have come out of years of, of the practice that we've done in community arts and cultural development is, rel- is relevant across that continuum and I'm really keen that we keep our eyes uh, up and seeing 
the relevance of the practice more broadly so that the practice framework is really a resource that can be tapped into by a, a broad range of tra- practitioners and is certainly not seen as a series of hoops that people have to jump through before they can call themselves a community arts and cultural development practitioner. Like for me, that's a form of reverse elitism that I have railed against all through my <laughs> engagement in this uh, in this sector. So yeah, that 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 feels to me to be the real opportunity we've got here. Yeah, I agree. To be able to give some support and collegial engagement across that whole spectrum is so important. Mm. And to understand understand ourselves as vital within the arts sector and to see artists across the spectrum as our colleagues, um, yeah, I guess the sort of advocacy in me never dies, really. <laughs> it's always been a challenge, isn't it, to be able to articulate effectually the common language and, you know, maybe that's a part of the beginnings of the process, isn't it? I think it is. I often find myself saying to people, look, it's not rocket science because otherwise it can sound like something that's exclusionary. But at the same time, it's a very sophisticated thing to be able to go into a community. I mean, it's such a privilege and responsibility to work in a community and the need to do that in a way that at the very least does no harm and at its best opens up a kind of whole world of creative possibilities that participants can control and use to tell their story their way, like that takes time and skill and thoughtful reflection. Yeah, it requires a kind of articulated process, isn't it? So we do we do have to be able to uh, create a create a clarity around what our process is in order to be able to assure our funders, our communities, our participants that they are. Uh, walking with us in in safety and with some intent. Exactly. I feel like we've got into talking about the practice framework and the code of conduct now, um, which is great. But but I also don't want to lose the other thing that uh, came with the with the pilot program was the establishment of making time, uh, which was the peer to peer gatherings that. Uh, Jill Brown from Cannes um, worked with you to put together across two years, which were monthly um, telephone connections. Listen to me, what an old old girl. Telephone. telephone connections. <laughs> <laughs> monthly, you know, Zoom teleconferences. Were, oh, they were Zoom. Oh, yes. well, look, it was even more sophisticated <laughs> than I knew. Um, but, you know, again, that peer-to-peer support, I think, was uh, really fantastic. And I'd I'd love to see CAN back in a position where it could sustain that uh, within its ongoing program because I think people found that 
really helpful. I think that's, if nothing else, COVID has shared us the potential more broadly of what can occur on a screen. But, you know, it is, I think we've got still a lot to learn about that online space and how we actually use it as a functional, safe, relational building um, Mm. platform. Yes. That's incredibly challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so great adventure ahead, really, the whole... Mm. Online engagement. Continuing adventure. Continuing adventure. <laughs> well, out of all of this uh, conversation and and questioning and engagement, we've created this Creating Well report that aims to provide um, an in-depth understanding of the challenges of the community arts and cultural development workers, but also a pathway, like an action map of to how we as a sector might be able to address some of these challenges. We really wanted from this work that there be a legacy that continues to grow and kind of advocate, I suppose, more effectively for some real structural change so that mm. we can be supporting each other in this process rather than seen as an isolated, um, difficult task to be advocating always for yourself. So, um, shall we have a look at the recommendations? Let's. So, there are six recommendations that have come out of this uh, research phase, uh, and we're going to break down each one a bit and describe what the recommendations mean and why that we felt that they were important. Um, June, would you like to take the first one? Um, establish a practice framework and code of conduct. Like this may not seem. Uh, the immediate thing that will come out of something called professional supervision, but actually it was a key driver that we needed to address in order to support all of the other processes that we were looking at. Yes. And for me, this uh, is framed by some of that earlier context we've talked about today, that so often it's very difficult to describe the work Uh, to people who haven't experienced it or don't know what it is, community arts and cultural development means. And really over the years we've had so many discussions about definitions, et cetera, et cetera. I'm actually more interested in what's come out of this, which is this idea of a practice framework and code of conduct that's not so prescriptive about definition but is a way of capturing what matters most in the work and gives people a roadmap for practice, I think, whether that's uh, for use by arts workers or employers or anyone who's even contemplating uh, starting to work meaningfully with communities. So it's really about uh, the things that support ethical and safe engagement, as you were saying earlier. And uh, because there's there's so much... uh, There's an inbuilt irony in this work because you're going into a community and looking to transfer power from you as the artist or the arts worker, to the participants so that they can determine how that project unfolds, what the stories are that are going to be shared and they're in a position to tell their story their way. But you've also got to maintain your own internal power 
throughout that process to hold the project effectively and help bring it to fruition. And that is quite a dance. Oh, that's interesting because um, my favourite definition of that is is to be a choreographer of experience. Ah. It is a dance, Um, isn't it? Yeah, that's a lovely phrase. Mm. Yeah, because, you know, one minute you're leading, (laughs) you are stepping in and, and creating a framework and a space, and the next minute you're stepping back to make sure that others are taking over and uh, and giving voice to anything and everything that they're uh, feeling. But so, so, and that's happening all the way through the process. So to ensure if I go back to my idea of that you're doing no harm in that process and also that you don't exhaust yourself in that process is is quite the task. So I think having practitioners articulating some of the intricacies in that, the ethics of the work in the form of protocols and practices will be of enormous benefit to many who work with communities and help others to kind of consider and appreciate what is involved, what you need to be aware of, what you need to be thinking about. So, uh, I yeah, think and, that, and that there actually is structured framings around what we're doing. It's not, you know, it's not make it up as you go. No, it's not an improvisational process. It's improvisational within that, but it's framed around a real strength of of um, intent and purpose and articulated and ye- thinking, and years of thinking mm. and practice. So that's the other issue here that it's not about hampering the diversity of practice that we do see across communities and across um, countries really but um, coming to the core of what underpins this the ethics of this work and the ability to create safe spaces for it to happen I think that's what's at the nub of the practice framework and the code of conduct. I think that's fundamental too to the advocacy for structural change. I think we have to be able to articulate this in order to tell people what their responsibility is in relation to um, a sustainable way of working for artists. Yes, exactly. Like we can't ask and demand... Um, for change if we don't have um, a baseline from which we are asking that. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And also a baseline that sort of spells out who's responsible for what so that the responsibility of the artist or arts worker is also clear and uh, just sort of assists in that process of contracting boundary setting. So I think for all of those reasons, it's important. But also, don't you think that, you know, um, with all that's been going on in our society to make more explicit the unspoken power dynamics that are at work in so many settings, whether that's, you know, the prejudices and unconscious biases that that are 
at work in a dominant culture, this this is so much at the heart of this community-based practice that I think being able to articulate this is uh, is timely and necessary. I mean, people want you to be as explicit as you can be these days about power, really. Well, exactly, and that's the principle underpinning the work, surely. Mm. So the more articulate we are about that, the clearer it is people understand what they're coming into and also the positions that they can take within that work. And, you know, for if I think about it from the point of view of Community Arts Network, where we are constantly engaged in uh, cross-cultural and intercultural uh, practice and working on that principle of first peoples first and having that grounded in years now, of working with Noongar communities and learning from them, you know, I just, it could never be more relevant than it is right now. So for for me, with that long view and the, um, and the more recent view, it's a kind of coalescence of things that I think have been at work in community arts over decades. So there's a lot to contribute to the broader discussions that are going on and there's a lot to take, especially from the uh, intercultural work, I think. Yes, and um, what a great time with energy around to make this happen. Yeah. So our second recommendation was to build targeted professional development programs and this came as a... I suppose going back to what you're saying about the dearth of service providers and this um, lack of um, any real opportunity for new or emerging artists to come into the practice, there's even less opportunity for people to connect in in a mentoring role on projects that are already happening because they are, uh, I have to say, um, less and less uh, available, (laughs) Mm. less projects happening on the ground than there were certainly when I was developing in this practice and had the um, privilege of being working alongside many great um, elders in the sector. So we, um, it was identified very clearly on on the point of view of all artists at every level coming in that they need to be very specific and targeted professional development for the the environments and the work that was being conducted and that it needed to fit both emerging artists but also have work particularly for the experienced artists where there is, I think across the arts in general, a sense that there isn't much support around capacity building or further expansion of work practices. So... If we could, um, again, if we go back to the idea of framing a a practice and and building a code of conduct, that from that we can build ready and responsive training that will support people, one, to understand what that means in reality on the ground, but also, two, how they can um, build and articulate and to identify their gaps but also their strengths in being able to be part of training and also potentially to offer training coming from Mm. a background of great experience and um, multiple applications of their work. I think that that capacity to actually offer training, again, is something that there was a real hunger for that, particularly from some of the elders in our communities who 
have um, such a wealth of experience and knowledge and yet don't seem to have any capacity or pathways in order to share this as they're leaving, like yourself, leaving this sector mm. and also feeling like that there isn't uh, a capacity for that legacy to be recognised and held precious. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I could really stomp into that turf, couldn't I? Um, <laughs> and sound very pompous, but it's more... It, you know, there's a couple of things in there. Learning is just lifelong. So the things I've learnt in the last few years, especially, well, in the last five years, five to six years at can, uh, particularly around the intercultural work, you know, are things that would have been really helpful to know 40 years ago when I kicked off. But... That's not the nature of our learning journey. And when you're engaged in this kind of practice where you're putting yourself out there with all kinds of people, real cross-sections of ages, experiences, cultures, you've got to stay sharp and you've got to stay curious or... You're stuffed, really. I think, or or you or you potentially you become, dangerous. Yes, you don't become. <laughs> you don't remain relevant. Yeah, uh, and therefore saying, ha- there's danger of harm. Yes, mm. exactly. So, um, so I guess I would temper that thing of elders and wisdom with. I would frame that in the. In the context of, yeah, we're all lifelong learners, so um, it keeps happening. Um, I think it also is um, part of that reflective learning, like you talk about lifelong learning, but reflective learning also requires time and space for us to be able to reflect. And in our sector where there is pressure to take the next job or to... um, kind of move on, that we, we don't really have uh, structured support around that reflective process in order to identify great things but also the challenges that we met and how we how they might be new or more more complex within these new contexts of our societies that we're working in. So I think um, partly the meaning of that in terms of our experience, more experienced artists is to be able to do that. Uh, have time for that and be supported to do that more effectually. Absolutely. And I love that process myself. I mean, I do find myself sought out by uh, younger practitioners who identify something in the way that I operate that works for them. I mean, I'm not out working on the ground with communities anymore, but, uh, well, yeah, not so often. Uh, It's more in that managerial and leadership role, but still it's the thing of uh, walking walking your values, I guess, walking your talk. And um, I love those opportunities, but you're right, they don't, they don't, whether they'll pay <laughs> <laughs> once I'm no longer on a wage is another matter. I mean, I've been mm. there before, you know, and um, but whether they do or not, they pay me back in terms of um, the exchange and the sharing of 
the new environments that some of the some of those practitioners are finding themselves in and the shared problem solving that we do when we talk, uh, which I find, um, oh, it's just, well, shared problem solving and collaboration is is just, that's the air I breathe. That's how I like to work. So um, it's very fulfilling. Look, I, I also would observe in, the, in relation to this particular um, a recommendation that we've waxed and waned around any kind of uh, formalised or tertiary study of community arts and cultural development. So certainly in the early days of practice, there was not a lot of formalised training and it was not fully, uh, it wasn't being embraced in any of the institutions. And then that did start to happen, uh, but over time with the cutting back of universities and uh, training institutions and the vocationalising and the importance of, you know, getting people into well-paid jobs, um, we've seen this work diminish from that agenda. And I wouldn't necessarily comment on the quality or otherwise or the direction that those particular um, institutions and uh, programs took. But, uh, you know, it's another area where it's very hard for anyone to identify a pathway into the work other than by doing Yes, exactly. And then in the doing, it's often in isolation, unfortunately. So that idea of... And learning by mistakes. Yeah, and working with a mentor or working as a kind of trainee or, or um, what's the term? Um, apprentice doesn't really exist anymore. No. Mm. I mean, we, we try to build that in where we can with our programs particularly because we are keen to develop um, the skills of people from uh, the cultures of the communities we're working with. And, um, well, often the skills are there, but, but placing them into the context of this kind of work and creating new opportunities. But it, it's, uh, yeah, uh, so we know the issue uh, of the need for structural change because it's not easy to argue for that kind of uh, capacity building budget in your funding application. So, you know, it is, and it's, yeah, the applied learning is the best in this job if, you, if you've got the right people running alongside you and you've got the sounding boards. Mm. I think I think what we're discovering in this conversation <laughs> is how interlinked all these recommendations are. Yes, exactly, are. because the because re- recommendation I'm number thinking, six is all that... All my dot points yeah. are, are coming up at once. Yes, well, they are all, are all interlinked and part of the hmm. challenge of this next part of the campaign, I suppose, is to look at, well, it's not the chicken or the egg, you know, we collectively have to look at all these in a in a similar way and one will feed the other and hopefully as we inch along the pathways of getting these things, um, some we'll get getting some clarity around these opportunities but also some structure put into place, then all the rest will 
will equally be balanced in the process. So, you know, build and maintain a community of practice is number six. And that's really what you're talking about. Like, how do we work um, at a peer level to share and learn uh, as part of our professional development, but also how do we escalate that so that that learning can be shared more broadly, particularly for new artists who are wishing to come in and see some validity in this Mm. practice. Mm. And as you say, for the mid-career or more established artists, then you're starting to talk about a bespoke model um, for what it is that they are honing in their practice and who it is that might or who they are that might best support that that growth. Which is kind of number four, which is the embedding yeah. wellbeing plans and professional supervision into community arts and cultural development practices. So um, it, there's a number also of... also kind of three. Yes. <laughs> oh, actually, we've jumped one, haven't we? Well, professional we supervision network, yes. Allow it does. me, madam, <laughs> to take you back <laughs> to establish... Into establishing a professional supervision network. Yes, which is exactly what you've been um, (laughs) expressing in this process of trying to look for um, containers of articulation and support, which is directly into the practice that we are, um, through the framework, trying to articulate more specifically. Yeah, and if I, I, I will just reflect on this a little bit. Uh, from a personal perspective, because I think this is essential um, and professional supervision for me has been quite critical in leadership and it's been self-funded. You know, essentially I've gone looking for the support I needed at various points. And for me... And I think this is relevant in community work as it is in managing staff or running organisations. It's actually about making sure that my pathology doesn't play out in my workplace. So, or at least not too much. So that I I recognise when my reactions or responses are being coloured by my own formative experiences and that I've got that capacity to just take a pause step back a moment and reflect before I jump in or move forward. So I've definitely self-funded forms of supervision throughout my working life and um, still always seek help when I recognise that something is... I'm being triggered by something at work. So... You know, that's that's human to have that happen, but it's I think it's an essential part of being able to operate as cleanly as possible and to create safe environments for others that you know and hold your own areas of... Um, what I call pathology, I guess the the potential areas of dysfunction 
and you don't play them out on your colleagues or your community. (laughs) Well, um, coming from a performance background, I really like the words of Aristotle and he talks about um, to be a best actor is to be the best person you can and that means, as you say, to understand yourself in a way that you can see what you're reflecting into the world around you. And, you know, as as facilitators or choreographers or however you want to frame that, our job is is to make sure that we can be tr- as transparent as possible. So um, part of that is to uh, explore ourselves, really, isn't it, and to That's understand right. how we work and, and how we um, present ourselves and what triggers us. And, you know, we, also, we need to do that from both sides. I think when you talk about pathology, it's a kind of broader sense of whole of self, whereas it's about our our own psychology but also about our practice so this idea of a professional supervision network is to have both you know that where where can we get that uh, psychological self-care connected with an understanding of our practice so that the two can walk side by side well that's the ideal way towards a sort of integrated self too that you take your whole self to work which does not mean you knock yourself out at work it Yeah. If you really take your whole self to work in a safe way, then it means you've got some boundaries and some clarity uh, about self-responsibility in there. So so I guess, um, you know, that's always been really important to me. So I think this issue of the professional supervision network is a really exciting one because even as someone who's Um, been able to earn a living wage most of the time through my career, Um, it's not easy to sustain that level of psychological professional support. So, and it's almost impossible on an independent artist's wage. So the opportunity to work together to create some kind of sustainable delivery of professional Supervision is, to me, one of the most exciting initiatives that arise from the report. Yeah, and in some ways it's um, one that's accepted across other sectors with, yeah. for a very long time. So people who are working in the front lines of community engagement and yet um, seem such a long way away from what we, we currently have. But, yeah, I mm. think it's very exciting. So recommendation four is embedded wellbeing plans and professional supervision into CACD programs. So in some ways we've, we touched on this earlier with the idea that, you know, there's dual responsibility for for independent artists um, working on programs as well as the organisations and the funding bodies that are supporting them to to be active in terms of an articulated support program. Because I think we... We often talk about it and there's a kind of expectation that it's done, but it's not necessarily part of project management or a considered sensibility around how projects are um, implemented. So, you know, it seems like a simple recommendation, but actually it's quite complex in the culture of how we're currently working in the sector. Uh, And there's a kind of... um, inherent weight, as I said earlier at the moment, that artists just need to pick it up and get on with and look after themselves, whereas actually what we're trying to say in this recommendation is that we both have to work collaboratively on this process and both have due responsibility around a duty of care for ourselves and the communities that we're working with because inherently if we're going into communities in a 
in a situation that isn't uh, where we're not operating at our best, then we're also um, potentially opening up the opportunity for that to be um, problematic. Definitely. And I think one of the challenges with this recommendation, to be honest, is going to be who's going to drive that advocacy and how are we going to get that forward? Um, Because as we know, uh, both our organisations are under the pump in various ways and we can do our bit, but we need a much broader uh, buy-in, I think, to really get this issue of self-care through to uh, federal and state government funders and uh, and local government. So, yeah, and I think I think that's where we we're sort of talking about budget lines in the way that you have to kind of ensure that things are budgeted into an appropriate sensibilities of timelines, etc. But we've got a lot of support around us in terms of other sectors who've done this yeah. and do it very well. Like if you look at the sports sector who have an extraordinary framework of um, professional supervision and um, uh, stipulated programs for their athletes. You know, we work in the same way at a high performance level Mm. and yet we don't have this as part of our intrinsic practice. That's come through from a strong advocacy from their um, sector organisations. Also, the social work and healthcare has come through um, with strong mandates around professional supervision and care programs. And that's been a very strong union activity that's enabled that to happen over the years. So, you're right, it is about, you know, how do we come together to actually seriously address this as a collective um, responsibility rather than saying, you know, rather than dividing it up into a kind of your responsibility or their responsibility. We, we do have to see it as a collective engagement process. Mm. And understand, as that sports environment understands and frames it, that we're talking about risk, managing risk, and responsibility here too. Risk risk to our um, workers and risk to communities and um, people who, for whatever reason, are more vulnerable in uh, the processes that we undertake. So... It's interesting, working in the disaster um, management area, there's a kind of... Um, Research that come out where currently the point of spend for disasters is I think it's ninety percent seven percent of funding, which is a massive amount of money, mm. um, is spent on recovery. Where, where whereas three percent is spent on um, preparedness and mitigation, and they are currently desperately trying to shift that around because they understand that in order to do in order to reduce that cost yeah. you have to have better mitigation structures so you know it's the same for us in order to reduce our impact cost we have to look at ways of mitigating and uh, it is a collective uh, task that is required and you know maybe it's in our approach and the way that we language things will enable us to be able to get through into those conversations with our governments and um, state federal organizations in terms of being able to see that as a care responsibility. I hope so, because when you talk about that mitigation in in the um, emergency response setting, you know, this, this work is one of the mitigations. 
And uh, so, yeah, as as it is for so many uh, of the issues that people are confronting, so being able to argue that this work, well, I suppose that's the more generalised advocacy for this way of working. Um, well, that's our framework. Mm, it goes back to that point mm, one. Mm. Yeah, exactly, and what it what it produces, what it allows for people, and uh, and therefore you need, as you are doing that work, to be able to model the care that you are offering to communities because, you know, I mean, uh, we our work is strength-based always and uh, we need to maintain our own strength to be able to stay with that. And to give the work the best opportunity it has mm. to be mm. um, all that we say it is. Yeah, but again, it's also that... Um, Understanding of process and of the things that underpin good process uh, and combating that notion of um, just give us the outcomes. You know, there are a lot of collaborators around the development of community practice um, who who also need to take some responsibility in terms of how these projects are being supported and and what the plans of support and um, care are put around that. That's uh, primarily people like local government who are funding and expecting great outcomes from these projects, as well as other philanthropy bodies, um, not just the community arts organisations or arts artists themselves. So, you know, this recommendation is to also up the ante for all those people who are building and expecting outcomes from the funding or the offering of these projects. Yes, and I think that is where... I feel like I've seen certain local governments who really are getting the depth of this work over time and understanding that if you do it wrong, you 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 don't engage your community, you can disaffect your community or communities and then that's your legacy and that is more harm than good. So some of, so certainly some, I think over time I'm seeing, are really appreciating that there is a depth to this work. So I think local government is a really good place for us to try and uh, work with with this. Um, The other thing is that local government is the place where there's budgets for professional development. And we've found, both at Cannes and I see this in my role as on the board of the Chamber of Arts and Culture in WA, that when professional development is offered in the area of the arts, there's a big take-up from local government. Um, So there is a hunger for increased learning around the application of the arts broadly and also the the importance of really 
responsive community engagement that is enacted through community arts and cultural development. So I think if there's some way of working with them about how that appreciation for professional development for their workers translates to the realm of the individual artists or the people that are contracting onto these projects, you know, that that's just a line that I think could be important to us. Who knows how far we get. Mm, very true. Well, I know just working with some local government representatives in a project down in southern New South Wales uh, where their response was, you know, you do the work that we can't but that we need to be doing. And so they under, you know, you're right. I think there's a broadening understanding of of the what value we add to um, the expectations and responsibilities of the local government. And that is what we are seeing increasingly with the work that we're doing with Noongar communities and First People, that that local government is recognising that if you go into that space uh, and get it wrong or it's very hard then to build trust and move forward. So the capacity to come to an organisation that has used the arts and community arts and cultural development to build that that relationship over years with different communities has, I feel like that's much more being recognised as a very particular set of um, experiences and knowledge that is worth tapping into. So it... And again, so it's a matter of how we articulate that message so that we can get them to back this process as part of our ongoing campaign. Um, what about with community artist practitioners creating individual wellbeing plans? That's number five. And in some ways I think it's a similar challenge. You know, we have we have a group of practitioners who are mostly kind of under the pump to get work done and don't have a lot of time to kind of reframe and reflect mm. um, and perhaps haven't been... Um, encouraged into good practice around this work and certainly not being given any leadership necessarily around how to do it well. Oh, I feel really strongly about this one too because, and and I do situate it along with the need for structural change, but really, uh, you know, nobody can set the boundaries for us so that's that's something you have to do for yourself. And I guess I, I learnt the hard way through experiences of burnout and anxiety starting to impinge on my um, effectiveness or, you know, at, at key periods, stopping my effectiveness entirely. So I think fundamental to this is understanding that we are not indispensable. So no matter how compelling we think the case is that we are, <laughs> it's time to let go of the ego and let that truth in. Um, that you know, as hard as it yes, is, we all like to be indispensable. That we are not indispensable, and once you once you allow yourself to consider that possibility, it's really liberating. <laughs> yes, indeed. You know. Um, and for me, it's been essential because 
uh, often in CEO roles, um, you can really feel like that. And it's a pathway to disaster. So Yeah, I often think it's exacerbated too because more often than not this work is done in isolation. You're like the, you're the singular artist working within kind of a very um, complex and uh, deep kind of exchange with the communities that you're working mm. with. So you can begin to feel that very strong sense of being a linchpin for a lot of action and support. Mm. Definitely, definitely. And people will very happily put that on you, you know, whether that's whether that's your employer. You know, I remember a very feisty stand-up I had to have with a manager in a local government authority where I'd been contracted to do some work and then had very little support for that work. And I was managing a really significant piece of work that had a large public profile. And I I said to this person, I'm hanging out on a limb and potentially a a significant reputational risk to your organisation. If if I don't pull this off. So really you need to find better support. Um, But, you know... It's not easy to stand up to an employer in that setting and... No, and there's also the stress that, um, you know, particularly for independent artists is that you feel like then you won't get another job. Well, yeah, I was an independent at the time. But, I mean, you know, it it takes courage and that's... I haven't done, you know, that's quite a singular memory of just thinking this is absolutely beyond the pale what's going on here and uh, I need to reframe this for this manager. <laughs> but, um, you know, that that's not, yeah, that isn't easy to do and uh, it's not easy to walk away from things. But all of these things are occasionally necessary in a working life, in a long working life. They, they can be necessary if that's what it takes for you to hold your values and take care of yourself. But, of course, you don't arrive at the position where you can do those things and look after yourself strongly unless you've got pretty good support and good sounding boards around you to work that stuff through. You don't arrive at that position instantly or in time usually. You get there after you've already started to feel the effects of overdoing it. So I think this this thing of having trusted colleagues or supervisors and being able to formulate some ideas and look for some opportunities to manage different situations and settings is really important because we all need to develop a repertoire of ways of dealing with the difficult employer, the difficult community member, the difficult scenario. 
if we've only got one way of going about that, um, you know, we'll we'll run out. So the more we can share knowledge and hear from another perspective, the more you've got a chance to sort of build up your kit bag of uh, approaches and... Yeah, so... so mm. knows- Well, that's the beautiful segue into Recommendation 6, which is build and maintain a community of practice, mm. which is, in essence, what you're talking about. Mm. Definitely. Yes, I mean, the idea of being an individual who creates a wellbeing plan for themselves and and then, you know, how is it enac- enacted? It can't be enacted without being in relationship with others working in your sector. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is key. Well, they're all key. And, yeah, it's interesting. We have them intrinsically to some degree. It's greater or lesser, you know, our peers, and some come and go and some stay with you forever. But I think there is something about that structured form which gives a rise to a consistency that we don't get necessarily Mm. otherwise in our day-to-day practice. And... I think it's through the consistency that we can start to feel that strength and support and, uh, as you say, gather the tools around us to be able to be better and more effectual mm. in having these conversations or setting these wellbeing structures around us and our communities. Yeah. And I think for those who've got a memory of the days when there was a community arts board or a community cultural development board or community partnerships committee and that long history through Australia Council of quite specific funding into this area um, it may there's a there's a potential to become nostalgic for that uh, and I guess I'd rather see <laughs> that there's an opportunity now for this to be practitioner led and not a top-down funding-dependent model. We are talking about structural change to budgets and the input of new budget lines, and, of course, that means some changes to the funding models that we apply to our projects. Ultimately, it's about self-advocacy, isn't it? It is. It absolutely is. It's about getting to the point where you are courageous enough, well, firstly, you're insightful enough to know what it is that your body, your mind, your heart needs to be able to sustain yourself as a worker and you're courageous enough to, uh, you know, hold to that, Um, which is, you know, I have the voice of some of the individual artists who've been speaking up loudly in this independent artist process that's been going on in WA and they don't lack courage and they don't lack a voice but they still aren't getting the pay rates that they would like. Um, So, you know, it's going to be a journey. I'm not pretending that it's easy and it just takes individual courage. It but but I just want to make the point that um, I think it's easy to 
look back on those days when there was a sort of centralised agency that had a real hold on this area of work and become uh, nostalgic for it. And there was there were real positives with it and there were potential downfalls with it. And I think we have to hold, well, no, it's time for us to own this. Well, we have to step into the leadership role. Yeah. It's we, we need to do it in partnership with them, but we need to be able to lead it and, yeah. and be self-determined in how that formation is, yeah. is framed and how it's developed. And walk our talk, really, in this, mm. both as, mm. you know, organisations working in this space and as individuals who are committed to it. Mm. Well, you know, the report was designed really as an invitation to our sector, mm. to our peers and colleagues, so that we could continue this conversation and map that path out forward as a, together as a kind of collective engagement process. And um, World Mental Health Day is this week and their theme is Mental Health Care for All, Let's Make It a Reality. Mm. And I suppose we're trying to make it a reality for ourselves and for our sector and to do that with some... Um, generosity and dignity, I suppose, in the process of how we build uh, and formulate this as a kind of um, advocacy campaign. Mm. How, how, uh, for June, for the people who are listening to this and would like to do something to get involved, either as an individual practitioner or if they're working for a funding body or an arts organisation or a local council, um, what could they do to take these findings and start implementing them in a practical level? What what are some of the ways that we could offer to begin this process? Well, I know it sounds really basic, but I think the first thing is to make sure the conversation's happening and to talk with colleagues um, about your own well-being and uh, and and not in the <laughs> not in the ongoing anecdotal. Uh, Oh my God, this is happening way. But in the, in the sort of like how sharing good practice, sharing solutions, sharing ways through and yes, and really trying to turn maybe some of those, well, moving beyond the, the, um, just debriefing into quite purposeful thinking about how you can support yourself more effectively and what you do need. So I think that that's the kind of starting to own this conversation in in the peer-to-peer realm and getting that live. And then, you know, I think there are questions that we need to be ready to review around contracting and to look at uh, getting the time and resources in to allow wellbeing practice. Um, yeah, and those practical steps are small but big, but also uh, very manageable, aren't they? It's a matter of getting some of those structural frames together and to share and to encourage the implementation advocacy for. Mm. I think so, and I know it can. We have this conversation when we get on a bit of a a, a rolling kind of a, a big head of steam of momentum with projects and more ideas or opportunities are coming to us 
And that ability sometimes to say no because actually we've got to carve out the time for this reflection at a team level, um, you know, we can lose sight of that and then, you know, it becomes apparent and we have to try and someone tries to pull it back. And (laughs) so you, you... I think we will wax and wane on this, but it's so important that this conversation is elevated and that therefore we're conscious when we're putting together our budgets that the time is in there. And then we've got to advocate up and out. So it's all very well for all of us to um, decide, yeah, we've got this nailed, we know, unless we get that change moving up through the ranks of local, state and federal government and agencies and spreading out to the philanthropics and, well, sometimes I think maybe the philanthropics can be easier, but... Yeah, you know. maybe they understand it more effectually. But this is where we, we need to start to build our collective language about how we tell the story mm. and then how we can um, escalate that into different spheres Mm. yeah yeah we're looking forward to working with those uh, colleagues who are keen to start building some you know again looking at really formulating some actions around doing these very things that you've just talked about so that we can really get some legs behind it so putting together some structural tools as well as putting together some of the language around the story which we want people to be sharing and uh, taking to their government representatives so the working party is out there people can sign on to it through our creative recovery uh, website we'll have the link at the bottom of this episode um and um, yeah, keep the conversation going. I think that's really key, as you mentioned right up there. If we don't continue the, to have the conversation in a really serious and dedicated manner, then once again it will dribble away. Mm, definitely. You know, it's a very ripe moment in time in the context in which we're living and the the context in which we're working for this work to get traction and to find a place and a, and a bridge to enable it or to be actualized so you know I, I look with some encouragement and um, enthusiasm to the fact that you know we can make these instrumental changes happen me too hmm. and I'll, I'll be there <laughs> Put on your two. Post can. (laughs) Well, I'd like to take this moment to wish you all the best for your next chapter because some listeners will know you and your co-CEO, Monica Kane, are about to finish up your tenure at Community Arts Network, both of you having long on and off investment in that organisation and I'm sure they're very sad to see you go as we in the sector are. Um, But... um, yeah, what an ma- amazing privilege it's been for me to meet and work with you, June, and to partner with you on this work and to be be supported by your insights and encouragement and also the investment that you've made over your career um, into this very vital network of artists and communities that um, you've been working with. Thanks, Gosha. I mean, it's it's just been such a rich experience uh, for many years, but this one, uh, these years at Cannes have been very special and in part because I've been co-leading with Monica and I know you've seen us in action together and it is a joy to work in Mm. such a dynamic 
and robust way with someone um, and generous way. I love it and I will uh, I will miss it but we're, and we're both a bit melancholy at the moment, mm. but um, we are... Uh, we know that it's a great time for the to hand the organisation over, and um, yes, so it's been a privilege for Can to be a part of this work. Thank you so much. Oh, we well, wish you all the best for your next journey. Thanks. Thanks for joining me for Creative Responders in Conversation, and special thanks to June for making the time to speak with me. If you'd like to read the Creating Well report or access the sign-up to the Working Party, you can go to creativerecovery.net.au slash creatingwell. We'll also include links in the show notes. If you're interested in hearing more on this topic, I'd also point you towards two of our previous documentary episodes that feature some of the participants of our Creating Well professional supervision pilot project. Season 1, Episode 4 with Fiona Sinclair manager of the Understory Art and Nature Trail in Northcliffe, WA. And Season 2, Episode 4, with Silvano Giordano, who shares his experience as co-director of Woolalara Creative, a community hub and art studio for young Nunadada people in Western Australia's Warburton community. All of our past episodes can be found in the usual podcast apps and also on our website, along with transcripts for every episode and links related to the topics we cover. We'll be back next month with another conversation. I hope you can join us then. This podcast is produced by me, Skosha Monkovich, and my Creative Recovery Network colleague, Jill Robson. Our sound engineer is Glenn Morrow, and original music is composed by Mikey Squire. The Creative Recovery Network is assisted by the Australian Government through the Australia Council, its arts funding and advisory body. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.